2: Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today is episode four of our mini-series called Freak Ships of the 19th Century. Now you will have learned from previous episodes that this series is based on a fabulous pamphlet that was written in 1966 by a chap called Jay Guthrie who worked for Lloyd's Register and created this booklet as it says on the title page For private circulation amongst the staff only. It presents what it describes as unorthodox ships, rebels from tradition and freaks of the nautical world which throughout the whole of the 19th century attain transient fame or notoriety before disappearing from the scene forever. Episode 1 was on monitors, episode 2 was on circular ships, episode 3 on cigar ships, and today we are exploring a remarkable vessel that has its own dedicated section in the pamphlet, a vessel called Cleopatra. Let's start, as always, by hearing a little about what Mr Guthrie himself has to say about it.
1: We have all heard the joke about making a man to fit the suit, but the Cleopatra is one of the very few vessels designed for one particular cargo only, and unique in that she was built around this cargo. Cleopatra's needle on the Thames embankment was presented to the British government by Mehemet Ali in 1819, but owing to its enormous size and weight, 69 feet and 180 tons, nobody could think of a way of getting it to England, and it remained in the sand at Alexandria, where it had lain for the last 3,400 years, for another 60 years, until John Dixon, a consulting engineer, was commissioned to transport it to its present location on the no-delivery-no-pay basis. A vessel was accordingly built at the Thames Ironworks in 1877, dismantled and shipped out to Egypt in pieces. For reasons which will be apparent later, the hull had to be truly cylindrical, but was flattened out fore and aft in the vertical plane to a chisel edge, the after end being fitted with a rudder. The requirements were that she should be as light as possible, with ample strength to support the obelisk when lying aground, to be a good seaboat, easily towed, and able to shift for herself should the hawser be slipped, which, in fact, did occur. For this she would require crew accommodation, steering gear, mast and sails, anchor, pumps, lights, stores, etc. Her length was 92 feet, the diameter 15 feet. This hull was subdivided into eight compartments by seven steel-strength bulkheads with openings to allow the obelisk to be supported by spring beams of timber. The vessel weighed 60 tonnes when completed.
2: Now, of course, we are never short of ambition on the Mariner's Mirror podcast. So we decided to visualise what on earth this vessel looked like. And we have created a really splendid animation, which for the very first time shows how the Cleopatra was built on the banks of the Nile and then explores her troubled journey back all those thousands of miles to London. You can find that on the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube channel. So please do look it up. As for our podcast listeners well I determined to find out as much as I could about the vessel from a modern historian and I turned to Andrew Chung Han Lin curator of ship plans and technical records at the National Maritime Museum in London. As ever I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the excellent engaging and entertaining Andrew. Andrew, thank you very much indeed for joining me this morning.
3: Hello, Sam. Good to see you again. And thank you very much for another opportunity to speak to you this morning.
2: So we are we are back on the subject of freak ships, which I've been hugely enjoying. And um, in this wonderful little uh, pamphlet that we found in the archives of the Lloyd's Register Foundation there is a chapter on the Cleopatra. And um, you said that you might be able to help me understand what on earth is going on with this remarkable vessel.
3: Well, I shall certainly do my best, because she is a very, very interesting ship. And she's also a little bit of a mystery, because there was only one of her ever built. She was built for a very specific purpose. uh, And unfortunately, her career was incredibly short, and she did not she did not survive the, uh, very long after her triumphal return to Britain. So, I, in fact, I think she was in service probably a bit less than a year.
2: Right. Well, let's go back to the beginning and, and, and find out what's going on here. Um, let's start with Cleopatra's needle. Um, what was it? Well, what is it? <laughs> it? It is an enormous monument,
3: uh, which was originally located in the ancient city of Alexandria uh, 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 near, near the mouth of the Nile and it was rather strangely gifted to the people and government of Great Britain by Mehmet Ali, who was the ruler of Egypt at the time. Now, the, the Albanian-born Mehmet Ali doesn't seem to have been terribly interested in, in the history of the nation he ruled, except insofar as it was a great diplomatic and political tool that he could give away to buy favours. So, in 1819, he gave this, this marvellous bit of ancient architecture to uh, to Britain, but when one looks at what this thing actually was, you'd almost think we were being set an intelligence test in... in <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> Very uh, good. Uh, a, a bit of a cursed gift, I thought that as well. Uh, Here you are. Here is an enormous granite column. Thank you. Yeah,
3: and <laughs> uh, just to put my, my remark into context there, this thing was just under 70 feet in height, and it weighed about 180 tonnes. And, and in 1819, in that was a bit of a tall order. You didn't just load something like this onto a ship. Uh, and, and send it on its merry way to Britain. I mean, we, we didn't have any ships that would be capable of carrying such a thing, um, not without chopping it up. And one really wouldn't want to do that.
2: Yeah. And it, it does kind of even the name it's getting you know, Cleopatra's needle. That's not as straightforward as you might suspect, because it's um, as far as I can work out, it's much, much older than the reign of Cleopatra.
3: Uh, yes, yes, it is. In 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 fact, I'm not an Egyptologist, so a, a lot of its history is is very very murky to me. Um, but but the the association with Cleopatra seems to have become what one that's become fixed in the minds of the British people, um, especially as the monument still graces the Thames Embankment. You know, we we wouldn't know it by any other name, and probably not by any other association. Even if you did have a friendly Egyptologist come along and. And try, try to explain it to you.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's a couple of thousand years before Cleopatra, I think. Um, Cleopatra then had it moved to Alexandria. So let's get back to 1819. There was, there were many layers of history here. Um, it's given as a gift, uh, but then nothing happens for a while.
3: Uh, no, not for about 60 years. We, we were terribly grateful to Mehmet Ali, but we unfortunately had to leave his generous gift lying in the sand... Um, for over half a century until we were able to start coming to grips with how to move move it. And in in the mid-1870s, plans were were put in in motion and a consulting engineer by the name of Dixon, uh, John Dixon, believed that he had come up with a solution for transporting Cleopatra's needle intact by sea uh, from Egypt to Britain. And to do this, he came up with a really, really ingenious craft, uh, which was, of course, to be given the name Cleopatra. So, this this outlandish thing was a cylinder, somewhat over 90 feet in length and 15-foot diameter, um, with, uh, um, I suppose you could describe it as it was pinched off at the end, so you had a chisel-shaped, very blunt, rather ugly-looking bow and stern, um, and a rudder attachment. Uh, and now he realized the thing would have to be supervised on the voyage. This was not simply a sort of dumb barge he was building. Um, so he had to provide accommodation for some sort of minimal crew. Um, He had to ensure that if the worst came to the worst, everyone had enough experience of towing heavy vessels like this to know that chances are your tow would part. So she had to be able to look after herself for a limited period of time. And that meant including a basic sailing rig um, and also enough by way of simple things like food and oil lamps to ensure that the crew would be able to look after themselves until they were rescued. Uh, And so all all these considerations went into the creation of this thing which was quite unlike anything that had been seen before. Um, And I don't think anything after it has really quite resembled it. But the real ingenuity, uh, uh, you may want to come into this later, is that that the ship was constructed in Britain in so far as the component pieces were made in Britain. But his vision was that he would, would almost move the mountain to Muhammad by um, taking the pieces out to Egypt and assembling the hull around Cleopatra's needle.
2: Ah, a flat-pack ship. A
3: flat-pack ship indeed, yes.
2: <laughs> very good. And whereabouts in England was it made? Do we know where these pieces were put together? Uh, very
3: uh, very close to where I am at the moment. It was Thames Ironworks, uh, one of London's, uh, probably London's most famous shipbuilder at the time. They were, they were based on the Isle of Dogs and... Uh, they had a long track record of building vessels that were both either very modern or quite ingenious, and, and they were up to the challenge of constructing this thing. They were Dixon's best option on the Thames, so they were the ones who put all these pieces together. Um, and, and it was quite an easy job for them at the end of the day, because, uh, uh, rather terrifyingly, for, for a vessel that was meant to carry an 180 tonne stone monument, the, sh- the vessel was very lightly constructed. We're, we're looking at plating that varied between three-eighths of an inch and seven-sixteenths of an inch in, uh, in wow. thickness. So,
2: so although it was steel and it was strong, it was very, very light. Hmm. yeah. And, and um, I'm, just, I'm, I'm wondering about so many aspects of this. I suppose they'd kind of built cigar ships before, so building something in that shape's not that unusual.
3: No, we had had the uh, things like the Ross Cigar Ship and various other inspirational. And Dixon would have known about these. Um, but I think for him personally and for Thames Ironworks, this was slightly new ground they were breaking.
2: Yeah. So they take this um, this vessel out in pieces to Egypt and then somehow put it together around the monument
3: yes so the the cunning plan was because the the monument was not that far from the sea so while the bits of the cleopatra were were being unloaded the needle was jacked up and oriented in a certain direction and once it was clear of the the sand the the hull was very slowly constructed around it but the final bit of ingenuity once the hull was completed the superstructure was not put on immediately. They still had to get her down the beach into the sea. And Dixon's ingenious method of dealing with this was to to allow for um, wooden bands to be fitted around the um, stress points, I think they're called air points in engineering lingo of the hull, um, to support the weight and, and allow her to roll. So once the hull was completed, they rolled it down the beach sideways. Into the water, uh,
2: and cross their fingers, and cross and
3: cross their <laughs> fingers. Now, luckily, Dixon seems to have been quite a competent fellow when it came to these sorts of things, and he'd wor- he'd worked out the stability, he'd worked out the packing, all the math had been done. But as you say, they all crossed their fingers as this thing was rolled down into the water. She floated upright, thank goodness, which then meant that they could then add on the superstructure and the masts and all the rest of it. But there was one hairy moment where, um, I'm sure they had checked the beach before they began rolling her, but the hull was punctured by a rock on the way down. So she had to be towed to Alexandria to have the hole patched.
2: Wow. Wow. I, I, I might have been incredibly stressful. <laughs> I,
3: I oh so, yes.
2: <laughs> well, especially for Dixon, because he had been
3: engaged on a no-success, no-payment uh, um, contract. Yes, yeah, so wow. He absolutely had to get this thing to Britain one way or another.:
2: <laughs> Gosh. Um, and so right, well, they patch the hull. What happens next? So, in, in the
3: summer of 1877, the, the ship leaves Alexandra towed by a, a tug called the Olga. And for the, ne- for, for the first part of the voyage, everything goes well. The weather in the Mediterranean's calm, everything's lovely. The, crew, the, the six-man crew of the Cleopatra are quite happy where they are. Things change once they pass the Straits of Gibraltar and get into the Bay of Biscay, which, of course, is absolutely notorious for its horrendous weather. And unfortunately, they are caught in very, very foul weather indeed. Um, As as expected in those conditions, the tow cable parted and there was an extremely hairy period where the the, the six-man crew of the Cleopatra were trapped on their vessel and the tug couldn't reach them because conditions were so bad and the, the captain of the tug, Captain Booth, uh, in the end uh, called for six of his men to volunteer to row over and try and fetch the crew of the Cleopatra. And with, with the greatest of irony, the, the volunteers didn't make it, they drowned, but the crew of the Cleopatra were able to escape when the Olga was brought alongside. Uh, must have been very impressive seamanship. Um, but they had no choice but to abandon the Cleopatra because there was no way they could, they, they, they had enough problems of their own. Uh, And so this, uh, so Cleopatra's needle was left drifting in in the Bay of Biscay for a while until she was sighted a few days later by another ship uh, in in fairly good condition. Um, But that ship wasn't, uh, I I believe, was not able to immediately take her under tow. They weren't in a position to, so more ships had to go out to try and find her. Uh, And in the end, she was located and was brought back into the Spanish port of Ferrol for repairs. (laughs) Uh, they they literally found a needle in a haystack. They, they seat. found a needle in a haystack. How, uh, but I mean, how, how <laughs> unbelievable. They
2: actually they, they just found it adrift in Biscay somewhere.
3: Yes, yes, completely unharmed. I mean, uh, d- despite the terrible conditions she'd been subjected to, she was still afloat. She was upright. There was a she might have lost a bit of her mast and rigging, but the hull was intact
2: and uh Yeah, I I do you know what? I think that's a really interesting moment in this story because I suspect that a bit of her, mars- she might, surely she would have lost some of her superstructure, but without the superstructure, she would have been almost invisible, um, mm-hmm. you know, floating so close to the waterline. So there must have been like a stump of a mast or something, something that could have been seen from some way away. I suspect it survived.
3: I, I think so. And, and also, um, because, again, it's the Bay of Biscay, um, they, there must have been some pretty eagle-eyed lookouts uh, on, on, on the ship to, to have actually spotted this thing. Because uh, uh, um, 90 feet sounds a lot, but when you're out in the middle of the ocean, that's not a very large craft at all. No, uh, no. And- Astonishing.
2: Yeah. Um, so they, they, they find her and then and then send another vessel out to tow her in.
3: Yeah. Yeah. They, so they eventually managed to, to establish a tow and bring her into the port of Feral where um, where necessary repairs are carried out, effectively restoring her to the state she was in when she set out from Alexandria um, and at long last, after a, uh, after a final bit of a voyage, which thankfully is is not so eventful, she gets, to, she gets to Britain in January 1878. So it's been a bit of an epic voyage, but she finally makes it. Um, and Cleopatra's needle is then installed on the embankment.
2: Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful story, isn't it? Um, there are so many different bits of this I want to know more about. I particularly want to know, now we talk about it, how they got the needle out of the boat. They had to take her apart uh, uh, along the top, unfortunately.
3: The great problem is when your ship's constructed fairly solidly around the object, you then have to deconstruct the ship to, to lift the needle out, so not a lot of the stories survived in any great detail, or well, not in coherent detail. You hear different versions, um, but as as I understand, one of the most prevalent ones is that the the upper plating was removed and the needle was um, craned out. Um, and and then I wonder if that
2: was on in location at embankment once they would worked out it was going to be there, or whether they did that somewhere else.
3: Uh, that I don't know. I'm afraid. No. We
2: need to find out. I I want to find out more about this story. There have to be some kind of records because there was a big debate about where it was going to go, wasn't there?
3: Yes, there was a huge one. And and I think I think having made it safely to Britain, the needle did sit inside the vessel for some time Mm. until everyone's mind
2: was made up. Yeah, I wonder if it went back to the the, the shipyard where the iron was was originally constructed. Um, so they made up th- their minds, and I th- I, as I understand it, there was um, a debate about having it in the Palace of Westminster, um, various other locations, but they settled on um, they settled on the Embankment, where you can see it today. Have you have you been to see it yourself?
3: I I have I have I've I've been uh, I, I I've actually leaned up against it. It's uh, it's an mm. amazing amazing thing to see.
2: Yeah, and they I know they have the the names of the sailors who died um, out in Biscay, though they're, they're inscribed at the bottom of the uh at the, yes. at the, at the bottom of the monument there. So that's um, that's a poignant thing to go and to go and uh, and look at. I, I think
3: I think I just want to say that tragically we don't really know exactly what became of the Cleopatra herself because for for a vessel that was really special and and did receive quite a lot of coverage in the press at the time the the Illustrated London News is one of the best sources of drawings for her um, but but very little else has survived beyond artists' depictions of the event and uh, and one model which our museum is very lucky to have. Um, so so we have some visual references, but in terms of if anyone ever asks us does a full set of engineering drawings for this remarkable vessel survive, the answer is as far as we know, sadly not. And I think part of the reason for that is that Thames Ironworks disappeared uh, um, very early in the 20th century, the company went under and the vast majority of their technical archive disappeared with them, which is very sad for London's greatest shipbuilder to vanish so completely like that. Um, but, but if there was any reference to Dixon's original drawings or Thames Ironworks' own drawings of the vessel, they have probably long gone. Um, as for the vessel herself, it's believed that the remnants were just probably left in a creek somewhere, um, but nobody really knows where. So. It, uh, it, it would have been nice if she was preserved as a as a memorial to a really interesting endeavor and and in many respects a, an incredible engineering triumph. Um, but I suppose we do have the needle itself to the the, the fact of its existence here on the embankment is um, is in some ways tribute enough to Dixon's um, planning and design
2: abilities. It is. It's sacrilegious as maritime historians to say that. But in this case, the ship is not the most important thing. That is very true. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know. So you've got a model of it. I'd like to see that. Let's see if we can get some photographs of that. And I've been at this ship model store at the Discovery Museum in Newcastle, and I know that they've got a model of it as well. So I'll see if I can get some photographs of that and we can share them on social media. So all of our listeners can um, check out the... the, um, the the visual visualization of this i wonder whether those models were made at the time or or afterwards um with someone basically trying to make up how it was done or whether they are accurate would you have any any idea any sense uh
3: nothing concrete i'm afraid it is thought by our ship models curator that our model was made sometime in the 1890s but it, it has a although it looks broadly correct dimensionally the way it's built and executed has that slightly amateurish look about it so you're never it's certainly not a dockyard um, apprentices model let's put it that way so (laughs) so it's tantalizingly close and it looks right especially when you hold it up next to the illustrated London news sketches but we
2: just don't know for sure No, it's a fascinating mystery, the whole thing. It's just clouded in mystery, but um, the, the evidence of the success is there on the Embankment for us all to see. Andrew, thank you very much indeed for sharing this wonderful story with me today.
3: It's been a real pleasure, Sam.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you all so much for listening. Now please make sure that this isn't the last thing you do to enjoy the content that we produce. We've got a huge back catalogue of fascinating episodes to explore. Great naval battles, shipbuilding, fishing, ship models, exploration, maritime art and literature, famous heroes, maritime disasters. We've got it all. Please also do check out our YouTube channel. It's simply brilliant. There are numerous innovative videos there presenting the maritime past in an entirely new light. My current favourite Apart, of course, from the brilliant Cleopatra animation, is an animation of an eyewitness battle plan of the Battle of Tsushima in 1905, when the Japanese annihilated the Russian fleet in one of the most decisive battles in history. It gives you an entirely new perspective on how that battle unfolded. Please also remember that this podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyds Register Foundation. You can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyds Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up. Please do. There's a free level of membership but if you're willing to part with a small donation you get a huge number of benefits one of which, of course, is our Winter Lecture Series where You can enjoy being enthralled and entertained by some of the finest maritime scholars in the world. You can find out all about that at snr.org.uk.